Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you are around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one. No questions asked. That is why I am offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on HighTruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. Today's episode is sponsored by Families Against Fentanyl. FAF is an organization set on breaking the status quo of failed solutions and to get to the core of the supply chain of deadly fentanyl. Learn more about FAF by visiting familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign their petition to declare illegal fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Hi, everyone. I so enjoy being with you to share another episode and another High Truths conversation on drugs and addiction. For your added entertainment, you can now watch this podcast on YouTube, something new I added for season two. And of course, you can continue to listen to High Truths on your favorite podcast platform, as you may be doing now. You know, last year, I was involved in an interesting research project that I conducted with scientists from the Center of Substance Abuse Research at the University of Maryland. The study was called EDDS, Emergency Department Drug Surveillance, and my hospital was one of five selected to participate from the United States. We sent 150 urine samples from patients that we ordered a urine drug screen to Maryland for comprehensive testing at a level higher than what we could do in the hospital. And the results were astonishing. 76% of all specimens were positive for methamphetamines. That's a lot of meth. And that makes us the meth capital of the United States. And it follows that San Diego is next to the Mexican border, a large supplier of our drugs. Only 6% of the urines were positive for fentanyl. And that was also surprising because Deaths from fentanyl have tripled in San Diego County. We're now at two deaths a day from fentanyl. Um, very sad and very preventable, which makes it even sadder. Marijuana was present in 48% of all drug screens, as well as half of all methamphetamines and half of all fentanyls. And really, 50% of all drugs are, are also positive for marijuana. Our emergency department is inundated um, today, not just with COVID cases, but we're holding patients in the emergency department for days or weeks because of mental health problems. People are living in our emergency department day in, day out, day, night, day, night, brushing their teeth there, doing junk jacks in the room, and probably being very bored. But many of them are also detoxifying from drugs. 
Um, there's a significant intersection of both mental health and substance use disorder, and we really should be devoting more research to this field. This data is important and should be used to drive health policy. Uh, what percentage of all mental health patients simply need to detoxify from drugs and to be safe before they're safe to be discharged to the emergency department or hospital? And perhaps this data will show that we need more sobering centers or different resources um, in addition to more mental health beds. So I hope that we continue to study the intersection of drugs, mental health, and holding patients in the emergency department in order to drive science-based health policy. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hi, Dr. Lev. My name is Annie McFarland. I'm a registered nurse case manager in a very busy emergency department. We have a lot of patients with methamphetamine use disorder, and I'm wondering if you can tell me what's the most effective treatment for that. How do we help these people? How do we really get down there on their level and help them get out of that uh, horrible addiction? I'd really like to know. Thank you. Annie, thank you so much for your question and for the concern and devotion that you have to provide care to our patients in the emergency department. I appreciate the frustration for lack of resources for patients addicted to methamphetamines. And because of that, I have a perfect expert for this discussion, Dr. Brian Hurley. Dr. Hurley is an addiction physician and medical director of the Division of Substance Abuse Prevention and Control for the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. He is the president-elect of the American Society of Addiction Medicine, ASAM. Dr. Hurley treats patients in their, and does research as well as involved in medical education. You can find Dr. Brian Hurley's bio on the High Truth show notes. Dr. Brian Hurley, welcome to High Truths. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I really appreciate because I know you had a long day at the office seeing patients and and saving lives, stamping out disease. And now here in the evening, you are with me. So I, I thank you for that. Um, I, I ask my guests what inspired them to work on the issue of addiction. Usually I find that people who are involved in this field are very passionate and you are a leader in a fairly new medical specialty. Um, and I know that that's exciting. Tell us what inspired you to pursue this career path. Well, to start off, I'm an addiction physician and actually I'm one of the few people I know that, uh, in the early two thousands applied to medical school to practice addiction medicine. Like I like, like started out, I was a uh, pre-med and well, no, actually that's not even true. I was in college and I wasn't pre-med and I was trying to figure out what to do. Um, but I had enough experience. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles. I um, had a number of, of friends and people I knew who were using methamphetamine and it was just such a devastating impact on on their wellness and on their lives that I got interested. What is this drug? How does it work? And so when I went to college, I started studying methamphetamine neurotoxicity. And I learned enough about doing bench research to know that I didn't want to do bench research, right? That that wasn't the career for me, but I got interested in how else um, to apply the science of addiction to help people. And addiction medicine just seemed like a really natural choice. So that's what, so it led me into the field. And, uh, yeah, it was over 20 years ago, and I haven't I haven't looked back. Brian, that's really interesting. I you're right. I haven't met a lot of people who are um, passionate from you know the college level to get into addiction medicine. Uh, for me, it was secondary. I 
Um, but I, I do know what it's like to be in a new specialty because emergency medicine was new when I went into it. And that, you know, brought you're kind of a pioneer at the time. And, um, and then from emergency medicine, I got interested in addiction medicine and uh, took the boards and passed and, um, and now, uh, really, uh, second part of my career is really devoted to that. So that that's fun. It always strikes um, me as curious when emergency physicians aren't interested in addiction medicine. <laughs> it's just so much, it's a, such an intrinsic part of emergency medicine practice. It is, but it's a, it's a, it's very different um, when you're devoted to it as a specialty. Yeah. So my, com- what makes it different is my conversation with patients. It used to be, um, you know, you're drunk, your alcohol level was 300, stop drinking. Yeah. Now I'll try to use like the motivational interviewing thing. Sure. And um, well, how can I help you? How is this affecting your life? These kind of conversations I never had um, before I got into addiction medicine. Um, and it makes it a lot more rewarding, actually. It sure does. It, it the Motivational interviewing really changes your relationship with patients, right? You, yeah. you don't feel, at least for me, I don't feel like I have to fix people. My job is to guide people when they're ready. And it's a very different experience of practice. Yeah, it does. It's, it's, it's helpful. And, I'll, and we'll talk about that. So yeah. I really, I want to talk to you today about various types of drugs and then um, the priorities that the American Society of Addiction Medicine has. Um, but let's start with methamphetamines and Annie McFarland. She's one of the case managers who works in our emergency department, a very busy place. Um, she sees many, many, many patients who are homeless, who um, uh, who are using methamphetamines and various is frustrated by the fact that there is little resources of what mm-hmm. she can, what, what can she do for these patients? And you can even, you hear that frustration in her voice. So I told her we have the, the best person here to answer that question. And that's you. What can we do? Sure. <clears throat> First of all, methamphetamine uh, as drugs go is on the more destructive end of drugs, right? So, so there are some drugs that um, uh, are not as addictive as other drugs. There's some drugs that have fewer physiologic consequences for other drugs. Methamphetamine has sort of like everything that's worse across the board. It's extraordinarily addictive. We don't have any super high efficacy treatments. We have effective treatments, but there's nothing that's like a silver bullet, right? There's no like one just, you know, take this med or do this therapy and everything's fine, right? Uh, the, the treatment for methamphetamine use disorder is iterative. And then with the methamphetamine marketplace being increasingly saturated with fentanyl, we're now seeing opioid overdoses for people who are using methamphetamine. So all of these is just, it's, it's a perfect storm of methamphetamine related uh, problems. And uh, as with all addictions, there's medication, there's counseling and there's support. And uh, methamphetamine happens to have no medications which are FDA approved, but that doesn't mean that there aren't medications that can be helpful. So the medications that can be helpful for methamphetamine use disorder include medications like mirtazapine, which goes by the trade name Remeron, or uh, bupropion, which goes by the trade name Wellbutrin, particularly in combination with naltrexone, which goes by the trade name Vivitrol. Um, so there's some, there is some evidence that these medications can help. Um, they help. They don't necessarily make everyone that takes them stop using. So I don't want to oversell them, um, but they can be a helpful component of a treatment plan. And then there's counseling, all right? And uh, as counseling goes, there's... Um, a myriad of counseling approaches that that have some efficacy, but 
um, probably the strongest effect is on contingency management. The state of California uh, recently got approval from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services to uh, use Medicaid money to pay for contingency management for people with stimulant use disorders, recognizing the need for this kind of treatment. And contingency management is where you take patients who use methamphetamine, and each time they evidence not using, right, usually through a urine toxicology test, you give them an incentive. And the incentive can be monetary, the incentive can be a privilege. There's a whole number of ways that you can operationalize incentives. And then the last thing that seems to be important for people with addiction, and we don't usually think of in healthcare, but it's really important, are the social determinants of health. It's much easier to recover from your methamphetamine use disorder when you're housed and employed and have transportation, right? And, 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 and have a community of people looking after you. And those things can be hard to immediately put into place out, you know, from the emergency room or, you know, at a, from an outpatient clinic, but are, are a really important component of recovery. And uh, so you mentioned medications, mm -hmm. contingency management, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, behavioral support. therapy and support. Mm -hmm. um, medications, do you use that on every patient? Um, there's no FDA approved medications. Correct. Right? So this is all off label. So just to be clear, these are medications that are FDA approved for other reasons that, uh, that I would use outside of their FDA label because they've shown some evidence and some research studies to be helpful for people with methamphetamine use disorder. Are so you finding that helpful in your practice? I am with a caveat, right? Mm -hmm. uh, most patients that take these medications don't respond. Now that doesn't mean that no patients will respond, mm -hmm. but if I was to, if I was to be a, um, just a doctor working in the community and my expectation was this medication was going to make a difference. I'll give you like a, a, an analogy would be, if I give you a uh, antihypertensive blood pressure lowering medication, my expectation is it's going to lower your blood pressure most of the time. Not every patient, not every time, but most of the time. The medications for methamphetamine use disorder work in some patients. We don't know which patients respond or why. Um, uh, but so my practice is I understand that most patients who take medications for methamphetamine use disorder are not going to immediately become abstinent from methamphetamine. But I also know that there's a subset of patients that will, and that's what I'm aiming for. I'm trying to give my patients every opportunity to be able to um, bring their methamphetamine use disorder into remission. I just had a funny thought. Mm. Um, I'm like giving Flomax to people with mm -hmm. a kidney stone. Is it really going to drop your kidney stone? I don't know. But that's that, <laughs> you know, and, and we do things like that all the time in this, you know, right. where, where we sort of give something, well, it might help. Um, right. The studies so I think that you're talking about with Remeron is like 14%. It's pretty poor. Um, yeah. But it's uh, like, it's, hey, I'm going to give you the 14%. I'm good, but I want, I'm shooting for the 14%. That's exactly okay. right. And, and even with that thing with Remeron, like, if you have a poor appetite and you have difficulty sleeping and you have some depressive symptoms, you know, I can, in other words, it's not just the methamphetamine. I can rationalize it looking at what are, what are the medications, other effects, right? So if somebody drinks a lot and uses methamphetamine, that makes naltrexone all of a sudden a much more attractive option because now naltrexone can help both address the excessive alcohol use and potentially help somebody use less methamphetamine, particularly if it's in combination with bupropion. I just don't want people who are listening to say, hey, you have a patient with methamphetamine. How come you're not putting them on Remeron? It's like, wait, that's exactly wait, right. Is, that's yeah, not, there's good reasons there not to, right? Not um, on the other hand, uh, I don't think it's wrong to put a patient on Remeron, right? right. Like it, it's sort of, it's, it's a somewhat nuanced uh, conversation. And, and with all things, 
I would only do it if the patient was agreeable because there's patients that just, they don't want to, they don't want to take meds for whatever. And and I'd say for you as an addiction um, medicine physician who has mm-hmm. follow up with their patients, you know, your patients are, you know, are, are established or becoming established that that would be fine. But for me as an emergency physician, like right. here, have some Remeron, like, I don't think that that we're not there. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. I have colleagues that work in emergency medicine that are much more aggressive about Remeron or, you know, now Trexone, let's say. Um, typically, those are practices where patients get linked to close follow-up, right? Yeah. So yeah. Um, it isn't necessarily that the emergency physician will be doing the follow-up, but that there's a plan for follow-up with the patient. And it's true. I have a continuity practice, and that means I can be iterative and try one thing. If it doesn't work, try another thing, right? Um, right. Whereas in emergency medicine, typically it's during the visit is what you got. And, uh, and you hope for the best when somebody just gets to start. Right. Um, can, and we talked a little about contingency management and the uh, state of California now being mm-hmm. able to do that. That's a huge win. I'm sure um, there's a lot of organizations who uh, went to bat for that. Um, and I, I think that that's, that's a huge, that's something to celebrate that we're, we've got a new tool that we didn't have before and it's fresh hot off the press and how is it being implemented what are you seeing are are um, yeah I can, it's I can not see. easy to do but are our <laughs> yeah. clinics starting to do it yeah so one of the big um hang-ups with contingency management is how to get it paid for because you couldn't find a health insurance product that would do it so the fact that medicaid will now pay for contingency management for uh medicaid beneficiaries is a, at least the Californian Medicaid beneficiaries is I think a, a huge win for the state of actually finding a sustainable way. So the historically, contingency management, the way it worked was you got a grant, the grant ran, paid for the contingency management program, the grant ran out and the program stopped, right? So all the patients that had achieved whatever gains they got during the contingency management program, uh, uh, you know, when the program went away, uh, that p- component of their recovery uh, ended up being lost. So now there's a sustainable way of paying for it, which is great. It actually goes live in July. So it's not live today. Um, uh, so one of the, the uh, jobs I have is as the medical director of the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health Division uh, on the Medicaid substance use program. So one of the things that we're doing at the, in, in Los Angeles County, but each county in, in the state is making these decisions, is how fast do we want to roll out contingency management? If so, who would provide it in our systems of care? You know, which of our contractors or directly operated programs would uh, would run a contingency management program? So we're very much in the planning phase. But just to be clear, California's contingency management program is built around the outpatient treatment system, like like methadone clinics, outpatient addiction treatment programs, day treatment programs. It's not yet built or available to community health centers, emergency rooms, hospital street medicine programs that aren't otherwise registered with the state to provide uh, specialty addiction treatment services. So it is at this moment very much a pilot, but a pilot that um, the way the state's operationalizing it is they wanna uh, make sure that the people that are getting the contingency management benefit are also enrolled and getting other, you know, other components of addiction treatment um, to maximize the chance that it will be successful and potentially uh, generalizable outside of those settings. 
Does that mean that starting in July in California, we should send, as far as Annie's question, we should be sending our patients to uh, the methadone clinics for methamphetamine use disorder? Well, we used uh, no. to be sending them. In a- <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I mentioned <laughs> I mentioned methadone clinics because they're one of the places that are uh, able, right, to, to take advantage of the condition management benefit. But you can't go to a methadone clinic unless you have an opioid use disorder. Just <laughs> to be just to be direct about that, right? They treat right. opioid use disorder now. Plenty of patients with opioid use disorder have stimulant use disorder, right? So it, it methadone, you can send a patient with opioid use disorder and stimulant use disorder to a methadone clinic. Um, but uh, because of the way the pilot's riding out, uh, rolling out, I would also just, you know, fair warning, not every place that does addiction treatment funded by Medicaid is going to be participating in the pilot. So you'd want to confirm in advance which are the places that are offering contingency management. So one of the, you know, operational issues I'm working on is how do we make in LA County the programs that are offering this uh, treatment visible so that people know where to send patients that they think yeah. will benefit. Well, uh, that's a, that's important. I'm going to start doing that in my area. And I'm wondering if um, I'm wondering if we need to do this all, I mean, in a systematic way all over California, like I'm thinking of our emergency departments, like every emergency department in the state should know where their local clinics are to, to refer patients. Agreed. Um, without substance use navigation, a typical referral, like here's a sheet, good luck, um, generates virtually no follow-up. It's not never. And mm-hmm. the follow-up gets much better if you start buprenorphine in a patient with opioid use disorder, just as an example, right? But, mm-hmm. um, but for kind of a straight, uncomplicated methamphetamine use disorder, uh, the best practice is to have that patient meet with a substance use navigator that would help follow up with them, right? So I, I best practice meets in the ER and then, you know, actually meets them at wherever their follow-up is or connects with them on the phone or, you know, do, does whatever um, sort of uh, service navigation is necessary. Um, uh, so I think a list is critically important and substance use navigation is also critically important. Right. Or our, all our case managers that we have, we all have case managers or our emergency department, they're informed. And at least, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's something that we could be doing or referring to. I, I'm yeah. looking forward to that. I'm excited about that. I'm excited about it, too. Um, we talked about motivational interviewing. That's something that we could do for people who are using methamphetamines or any type of drugs or really for uh, obesity or diabetes or high blood pressure. Really, it works for everything. It probably works for your, you know, your your children and husbands and wives. You do a great course on that. <laughs> my my, my do... husband will oftentimes tell me you're doing that motivational interviewing thing. <laughs> right, right. I need to I need to do that more. My husband, it could help me to get the groceries out of the car. Right. Um, uh, so tell us about that. What are some key principles and and um, and learning more about it. So motivational interviewing is defined as a conversation style, a collaborative conversation style uh, focused on change. And it's structured in such a way where the interviewer structures the interview such that uh, the patient or the interviewee is the one that gives voice to change. And it's really counterintuitive. We don't learn this a lot in medical school, right? In medical school, it's ask a bunch of questions, get your, you know, everything you need to know to write a note, do a formulation and come up with a plan, then come up with a plan and tell the patient what the plan is, right? That, that, that was, that's my back of the envelope of what I remember. Um, what motivational interviewing does is actually say, start with open-ended questions um, and then listen for what is the patient ready to do, right? Because motivational interviewing isn't uh, some trick to get a patient that's not ready to change 
change. But they can take a patient that's ambivalent about change. I'll give you an example. A patient walks in, I think you used an example earlier. A patient walks into the emergency room with a, a blood alcohol level of 300. And rather than saying, you know, you can't drink, you might say, what about that alcohol, huh? You end up in the ER. And just use some very basic observations and reflections to see what the patient says next. And the patient will almost always defend themselves. I didn't drink that much. It's not my fault. But then the patient will also sometimes give change talk. And change talk, it would be something like, you know, I can't believe how much I drank. This is terribly embarrassing. I can't believe I'm in the emergency room. Like, what has the drinking done to me now? And in a strong motivation interview, you use reflective listening to selectively reflect the change talk. So you, you might hear sustained talk. And rather than challenging it or arguing with it, like, you don't think you have a problem. What are you talking about? Rather than confronting it, you what's called roll with it. Uh, you roll with sustained talk and then listen for, yeah, you entered the emergency room. That's really scary, right? They didn't say that, but that, that might be the underlying sort of uh, thing that the message that they offer. And then um, and, and see what they say next. And oftentimes you get more of what you reflect. So if you listen for change talk and selectively reflect change talk, you're more likely to have the patient give voice to the changes they might be ready to make. And the empirical studies are that um, uh, us clinicians talking about change makes no difference to patient readiness to change, right? Our arguments, our, our reasons, our ideas uh, are themselves ineffective, absent the patient also giving voice to them, right? Um, the patient behavior so much more closely tracks with the, what patients hear themselves say as opposed to what the clinician says that I try to structure um, essentially all of the interviews that I do, I try to structure and listen for motivational interviewing until I'm clear what the patient's ready for. And then we do, then we go to planning, but that's in this case, I know that the patient's on board with the plan because of what they've given voice to. So that's, I could go on and on about motivational interviewing. But, yeah, uh, it, it is. And you do, I think stuff. you do an eight hour class, which is, yeah. it's yeah. wonderful. <laughs> I, 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 that's the one thing I wish they did teach. And I have to tell everybody, I have two daughters in medical school that if they were able to get that in medical school, I think that that would be, that would be a, a good life have, and physician skill. I give, uh, I give motivational interviewing trainings a lot. And I have a trainer that, that I, uh, that I train with. He says, what if instead of getting paid per unit of service, right? So per, you know, uh, DRG code in the hospital or per uh, uh, CPT code in outpatient practice, what if we got paid every time the patient gave us a change statement? And how would that change our practice? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would probably we'd, change things pretty quickly. Give them the script. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I just thinking, it made me think of all sorts of interesting things, but I think we rarely get thanked in the emergency departments for what we do. We just kind of see a lot of patients and it's all a blur. The one patient I had that brought me flowers like months later was a guy who, who was drunk. And I just kind of described to him what he was like and told him that he seemed like a nice person now, but when he was drunk, he really wasn't. Um, and that was his change then he like make it made amends and, and thanked me for it it's, months later by the time I already forgot about him it's so interesting you say that one of my mentors Shelly Greenfield uh, chief academic officer at McLean Hospital at Harvard Medical School says as a medical student she was in the emergency room a uh, patient came in drunk right intoxicated uh, she explained you have alcohol use disorder right here's your treatment you know uh, this is a medical condition here's your treatment options and it, it, uh, uh, it's her story so I'm probably not doing it justice 
that patient came back and brought flowers. Or I think the patient's family member came back and brought flowers. Like there is something about these intense interactions with the emergency room that can, that can. Yeah. It's a, it's an educational moment (laughs) for sure. And for a lot of things. Um, Can you mention something about the trifecta? We've talked about this before the trifecta of homelessness, mental health, and methamphetamines. And we're in California, we're seeing 50% of all the unsheltered homeless people in the entire United States uh, live where we live in Southern yeah. California. Um, and the number has increased during the pandemic. I swear people are just being bussed over here. <laughs> They're not native Californians. But anyway, we have this, this trifecta of a problem. We, we do have a concentration of people experiencing homelessness and partly because, you know, um, substance use is shaped by geography, right? Uh, drug use is typically a very local activity. It's hard to use drugs virtually, right? So uh, it, it, there are trade routes and cartels, and there's a lot of things that happen in the illicit marketplace that, that factor into what drugs people use. Um, so there's a lot of people experiencing homelessness in Los Angeles, and there's a lot of people experiencing homelessness or I should say Southern California, right? Uh, in Southern California. And in Southern California, they use methamphetamine. It's, um, uh, you know, outside of tobacco and alcohol, um, one of the one of the top drugs. It's actually um, overdose and methamphetamine involved overdose is one of the, ma- the leading cause of death for people experiencing homelessness in our area. And roughly half of those deaths are opioid overdoses, if you can believe it. So like yep. fentanyl, right, mm-hmm. which is a, uh, a, can be found contaminating methamphetamine, is a huge driver of, uh, of overdose. We've seen that nationally since 2014 and then locally since maybe 2016 or 2018, depending on how you slice the data, of um, uh, fentanyl being a huge driver of overdose. And the other thing about methamphetamine is that um, so methamphetamine uh, in some ways it's a solution that becomes a problem worse you know, like if you're looking for something to keep you awake and alert, say at night when your safety is at risk, like there are some very, I can, uh, some understandably adaptive things that I can see why, um, people experiencing homelessness that use methamphetamine find methamphetamine to be adaptive beyond just the euphorogenic effects, right? Beyond the sort of how you get. But I'd also, um, say that, you know, methamphetamine can cause psychosis. You get uh, kind of uh, after intoxication, depressive states, uh, uh, even outside of psychosis, a lot of agitation. And what I've seen, and, and my uh, primary board, outside of being an addiction physician, I am a psychiatrist, and uh, you know, I work in the psyche emergency room, among other places. Um, but a considerable number of patients that come to men- the mental health system's attention are therefore methamphetamine consequences. And, uh, and it's sort of counterintuitive because you think, oh, well, if it's methamphetamine, you should, you know, go, go off to treatment. But um, it's oftentimes the mental system that is dealing with the acute effects, right? The acute agitation, the suicidality, the uh, psychosis, right? The other um, uh, psychiatric effects of methamphetamine use that do pass when the methamphetamine use passes, um, but require a fair amount of psychiatric attention and resources. I'm thinking I worked on January 1st in the emergency room. And um, I mean, over half of our beds were for people that had uh, needed emergency room attention for their methamphetamine intoxication. And we were essentially waiting for the effects of methamphetamine we're after to make a decision. We call it we call it methicidal. Yeah, that's right. Right. They have methamphetamine toxicity plus suicidal or methicidal. And the problem is, you know, if you're if you're drunk. That'll last a few hours and you'll be fine. We have drunkocidal too, but methicidal takes three days. That's exactly right. That's right. exactly right. And and I'll tell you, having 
and you know, worked in inpatient psychiatric units and in the jail, right? People will go to like the mental health housing when they get incarcerated and then be cleared a few days later, right? And then they can go to general population. You'll see people end up in a psychiatric unit on a 5150, a three-day involuntary hold, clear, and then be discharged. So our mental health system is really uh, faced with managing a lot of the mental health effects of methamphetamine. Yeah, you know what that that was my intro to um, to this uh, episode is um, that we need to get the study and data of the intersection of mental health and drugs because maybe that data shows that we need sobering centers. Maybe these patients, a significant not all of them, need a place to detoxify mm-hmm. and get their brain back. Um, um, so you know, it, rather it's, than it's, the emergency department. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting you mentioned that. There are sobering centers. And in fact, uh, the state of California is that health plans are beginning to covering sobering centers. I'm working one of our local health plans. We're creating a, a sobering center in South Los. We already have one in uh, the Skid Row area of downtown LA, but we're opening one in, in South Los Angeles. Um, um, uh, the kind of standard best practices on sobering centers for 24 hours. Like sobering centers are built for alcohol, at least historically built for alcohol. Right, right. but now um, we need them for meth. Right, and so uh, I'll just say the sobering center uh, model for methamphetamine is much less consistent because uh, I'll tell you, there are a lot of patients, they're not stable enough for a sobering center, right? Sobering center requires somebody to be like calm, participating, voluntary. I mean, you can be drunk and do that, but if you're hallucinating if you're you know acutely agitated or aggressive yeah um, you you can't do it in the maybe the acute phase but the crashing phase the the three-day phase where people just need a place to sleep sure Mm -hmm. yeah so you mentioned um high association of methamphetamine and um, fentanyl Mm -hmm. it's why we're really advocating now for people using fentanyl or any illicit drug to have an naloxone because you don't know it's a russian roulette when you're using drugs what can have fentanyl in it um, so it's really a travesty. And the Families Against Fentanyl were the first to headline the CDC data showing that the number one cause of death in age 18 to 45 is fentanyl, more than COVID, more than suicide. And every 8.57 minutes, somebody dies of fentanyl. So really, with the Omicron variant, people get sick with COVID now, but they're not dying as much from COVID. They're dying from fentanyl. People are dying from fentanyl. What can we do? Uh, fentanyl is a huge threat to public health. Like, let, like, let's just be clear about that, right? It's a huge threat to public health. So a couple things. Um, the population that's highest to use fentanyl are people with opioid use disorder, right? People that are buying heroin or, you know, uh, uh, illicit prescription narcotics. Um, so that population still uses fentanyl the most. The most effective treatment for opioid use disorder are medications for opioid use disorder, particularly methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone long-acting injection. And uh, when taken, these medications help reduce overdose. So I I would sort of start with, uh, we want to make sure every patient with opioid use disorder has access to medications for opioid use disorder as quickly as possible. That means even before they're ready to go to a treatment program, maybe even before they're ready to stop using fentanyl because it can dramatically reduce the the fentanyl driver of death. That said, there's a lot of people who, um, uh, there's innumerable groups that describe the experience of people that go buy another drug, methamphetamine, maybe a a knockoff sedative, like a a street, like Xanax or something, and there will be fentanyl laced in it, right? And people overdose unknowingly. Um, I think Narcan should be in the hands of every person in the United States, right? And and we should know how to recognize the signs of overdose and and immediately respond to overdose. Um, And so naloxone or Narcan is an antidote to uh, opioid overdose. It's temporary, but it can be the difference between somebody staying alive and not staying alive. 
And then uh, the third thing is help reduce drug use, right? So, and now we're back to social determinants of health, which would involve, you know, making sure that people have access to treatment as soon as they need it, make sure that people have access to housing, make sure that people stay employed as long as possible, right? Trying to reduce the community burden of substance. I, I was hoping you were going to say prevention, primary prevention, like, mm-hmm. you know, teach resiliency yeah. in elementary and middle school so people don't get into drugs in the first place. Yeah, it's, you know, um, there is some research on resiliency that tends to work mm-hmm. really well when people have adequate resources. So one of the things that um, I have seen not work is re- resiliency training in under-resourced communities where, like, it's hard to do, you know, strong engagement or resiliency if you're not housed, right? Or if you don't have control over uh, your living conditions or your working conditions. So I think that there's a, a component of resiliency training, which is an individual's sort of responsibility in navigating the world and all of its unfairness. But I also think um, uh, family systems and communities need to think about how do we how do we make sure that um, uh, we're not leaving uh, an under-resourced community and then blaming them for the consequences of their own under-resourcing. So that means community housing programs, supportive services. Um, And I think both are important, right? Uh, Teaching individuals, right, resiliency skills, but also providing people reasonable access to how to live lives free of drugs. But and then I don't know the answer to this, but the 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 overall population that's using drugs, there is a there's a small percentage. They're not the majority, I don't think, Mm -hmm. that are unhoused and have those constraints. The majority probably did come up with with housing and, and you know, maybe other trauma, but um, but that's why I think starting at a young age um, and not doing that primary prevention work is so important. Our, our state uh, surgeon general is recommending adverse childhood experience screening, right? It is not simply unhousedness, right? It's mm-hmm. um, all of the traumas that one can experience growing up uh, related to disrupted attachments, disrupted safety. I mean, it's more than simply housing, to your point. So I I think um, one of the projects I've been working on over the past year that's coming to fruition, I think as of tomorrow, um, we will have a a California bill by Senator Melissa Melendez requiring all hospitals to include fentanyl and drug testing. So all urine drug screens in -hmm. in general in the United States have the federal five, a minimum of five drugs that's screened for. Um, In San Diego, we kind of piloted this over the past year. We now the majority of hospitals in San Diego include fentanyl in their drug screens. And now we're hoping all of California hospitals would have that and be a model for the nation and a positive screen lets the doctor knows, lets Mm -hmm. the patients know, let friends knows, can change behavior, can inspire a prescription for naloxone. Um, so I think that that's, um, that's a big deal. I'm ex- really excited about it. And I hope ASAM and, and you support that bill when it comes out. Um, uh, CSAM, the California Society of Addiction Medicine, would be the one to take a position on the California state bill as opposed to ASAM. But what I can say is uh, in my clinical practice, I use a 14 panel, right? <laughs> I, would like, I like to know yeah. a whole variety of things. That may not be practical for routine medical practice, right? So I'm not trying to... to, to but you don't get those 14 drugs right away, right? right. You send them out. Uh, no, they, 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 I have a 14 panel cup amino assay. That, um, that, that comes back within an hour? It, uh, it comes like literally I have the cup in my hand. Like I, it comes back. Oh, very nice. And it has yeah. fentanyl. So fent- there's no uh, FDA approved fentanyl strip. So I could use one illicitly or li- okay. like yeah, it's for forensic use only. So I could That's use right. that. 
that That's strip right. is notoriously unreliable. Um, that, otherwise, I would have to send it to a lab. Which, but, which is why this bill is so important, because so if we're important. doing that in the hospital, then you have it on the outpatient setting because you right. don't have access to that testing. I don't. Um, and so that's why it's so important for me to right. have access to fentanyl testing that's hospital-based or lab-based. And, and I need to know that the labs have the capacity for running fentanyl. So that's a long way of saying I certainly personally support the bill. Um, ASAM doesn't uh, traditionally take a position on state legislation. Uh, that's usually our state chapters. And uh, uh, as a CSAM member, certainly would support CSAM taking a position in support of the bill because we do want to be able to identify fentanyl use. So what, once I have a bill number, I'm going to send it to you. Yeah, let me know. I'm happy to, yeah. happy to talk about it. Yeah. That'll be great. I'm excited about that one. On the supply side, I think supply is not something in the doctor control. Like, what are we? We're not. We're not involved in that. But there is an organization that's um, sponsoring this uh, episode, Families Against Fentanyl, who are looking on a high level to declare fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction, and mm. that way to have increased penalties to the people who are bringing it over with their pre precursors or sending it from China to Mexico and, and bring it over on a high level. People who are doing that are really murdering America. Um, and um, and we need stiffer uh, penalties for people to think twice, three times, four times before they bring such drugs like that into our country. Um, and then I don't know what you think, but I've I've been promoting the infectious disease model for mm. for for overdoses. Like mm. we're doing all this stuff for for COVID, and, mm -hmm. and we've got hotels for Shigella diarrhea for yeah. six cases. Yeah. Why aren't we doing more for that? Why aren't we doing contact tracing for overdoses? Each each overdose is a is a, a teachable moment, um, and I think we can apply the infectious disease model to to drug overdoses you, you use the word the infectious disease model it's interesting i sort of think about it as the public health model right of, tra mm -hmm. of epidemiology tracking and prevention right yeah and i i'm a huge fan of the public health model of addiction right in concert with with treatment right i'm not saying yeah. that up right but yeah of course because we know that uh, uh fentanyl uh pops up geographically uh, so it pops up in clusters and we know that people generally have associations with who they use with. So I think that uh, infectious disease tracing or piece of public health epidemiologic model of addiction has a lot of promise. Um, it's tricky, you know, when people get an infection, there's not usually a lot of legal consequences, whereas historically, you know, our country has treated substance use as a crime. And so I think there's people with very justifiable concerns. Uh, what, you know, if, if I, if I talk to this contact tracer, right, if I'm honest about my substance use, am I going to get into trouble? We would need to work through those, uh, that stigma, um, because uh, for very justifiable reason, there's a lot of people that use drugs that don't trust the government or don't trust people that would call and ask them about it. Whereas they might for COVID. Yeah. So I would do it a little differently than an STD. So for mapping, I think, I mean, uh, frankly, we should have mapping. There's many States in the United States that have mapping for overdoses. We don't have that in California and we're behind. Um, and we should be doing that because we did, we'd say, okay, this zip code, we need like naloxone boxes on all the bathrooms and the gas stations. And this, zip, you know what I mean? We would be, we would be smarter in our mm -hmm. harm reduction approaches. If in we our had, deployment. Yeah. Mm -hmm, yeah I mean, if we had think about it like AEDs, right? Like if you're ever right. in a public place and somebody is down with an arrhythmia, you have That's a device right. that could I, save them. It doesn't <laughs> always, right. But could save them. Uh, I, uh, where, you know, think of the same model where, you know, how many units of Narcan do we need where, where are they being deployed? How do exactly. We, you know, and yeah. yet we're afraid to do the mapping. Um, and, and we are able to, because we do it for STDs. We do it for COVID. And why aren't we doing it for, um, for overdoses and contact tracing I see would be, um, different. It'd be like, okay, you, I, I mean, I, I do it in my own, like little personal practice, just kind of to see how it works. Like you had an overdose. Who else is 
using these drugs? Who else got these pills? Let's tell them and let's get yeah. rid of it. So yeah. nobody else dies from these pills, right? Yeah. It almost killed you. Um, so in that kind of sense, and, and, and I've had, you know, or like the, um, two girls use, went to a hookah bar and they thought they were using cocaine. They ended up using fentanyl. Let's, yeah. they came from this college. Let's go educate, right? Mm-hmm. Every overdose is a teachable moment. And that totally. population is now going to go. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what I mean by every, dose um, is, contact every overdose is a teachable moment. It's a great, it's a great frame. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about marijuana. Um, sure. California declared marijuana an essential business during a pandemic. They now are giving tax breaks to the poor marijuana industry um, while well, their business boomed and other businesses have suffered. But where, where, where's the science there? What are, what are we doing right and wrong on marijuana? Well, um, you know, the voters in the state of California voted to essentially create a cannabis industry. And that's what we're seeing. Um, there are a number of players in the industry, right? Uh, Companies who get a lot of market traction by talking about the health benefits. And I think part of that was the campaign that really, you know, uh, in the 90s, we uh, authorized, the state of California authorized people that received a card from their physicians to uh, be able to possess a small amount of cannabis uh, without uh, prosecution. And it's interesting, people talk about a marijuana prescription that doesn't exist. You can't, it's not a prescribed, I mean, you can prescribe, there are, FDA pre, there are FDA approved cannabinoids that are prescribable, but the actual plant, a thing that people, that, that sort of uh, exploding across the industry has never really been prescribable. So you can give a card to protect somebody from criminal prosecution, but we still see this idea of sort of the medicinal benefits of cannabis. And the uh, evidence on the medicinal benefits of cannabis are actually quite soft. Um, it's not that there aren't any benefits. For example, cannabidiol seems to have an effect on certain types of juvenile seizures. But, um, but we I, have a prescription for that. Right. Well, babies are not smoking pot. That's exactly right. And so um, w- w- what I've actually seen is... Uh, um, strikes me personally is like a snake oil industry, right? Like if you can't sleep, cannabis, if you sleep too much, cannabis, if you're depressed, cannabis, if you need to I saw down, if you cannabis. have COVID, you should use, you know, cannabis. Absolutely. It's, it's sort of a, it's a, it's a good for what ails you. And it reminds uh, me almost of the tobacco industry back when, absolutely. back when the tobacco industry used to promote tobacco as healthful, right? And it's been, you know, many decades since the tobacco industry has done that, but I think we're seeing the cannabis industry go through a very similar evolution right now. Yeah. Same playbook, um, uh, but better. That's right. Now, um, I, you know, I also recognize the tremendous societal cost of incarcerating people for using cannabis, right? And I think there are cannabis advocates that very rightly point out that uh, uh, criminalizing people and incarcerating them for possessing small amounts of cannabis may cause more harm than good. I think that there's a point there. But, uh, but it's that, not it's not fair to marry those two issues. You can you can tell I the truth and health agree. benefits and not and decriminalize it. I agree. I yeah, agree. I agree. Interesting. It's always well. Thank you for yeah. You know, a lot of people don't want to talk about the M word, the marijuana word. But I'm I happy think to that talk that's... about. I'm talk, I'm happy to talk about cannabis. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, I think right before this, I shared a recent studies. We saw what's happening to kids, not kids, babies. Yeah. Or one study, um, thirteen point three fold increase in children under the age of six who are coming to the hospital because of marijuana poisonings and 15% of them um, are going to the ICU. So 
you know, they see these little Cheetos, they look like Cheetos, but they're Weedos and they end up in ICU. It's so there, sad. This idea that cannabis is It's not okay to be preying on children. And it's not, yeah. Um, Delta 9 THC is the, the dominant cannabinoid that people are known for its euphoric effects. But there's actually a number of uh, Delta 8 THC products that currently are available legally in the market. And one, one of the things that we're seeing is an increased rate of youth, youth exposure to cannabinoids that aren't actually driven entirely by Delta 9 THC, but by this variant that people can actually purchase and it's currently unregulated. So I think that um, with the huge rise in the availability of cannabis and the, all of the consequences, health consequences that, that we see sort of resulting from that, I have a feeling we're poised to see some regulation around uh, around cannabis. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, um, well, but around creating some real boundaries. around. We, we need to do that. Colorado did. The Colorado uh, mothers have rallied uh, about the high potency and protecting kids um, um, from this. And um, they've done something. California has not done anything since legalizing marijuana recreationally. And I think what people voted for and what is being sold today are, are different. completely different things. Different. This is not what people voted for. Yeah. Um, these really high potency um, uh, products that are resulting in significant, I mean, every single shift I take care of a marijuana poisoning. Yeah. Yeah, so You make a good point. Marijuana is not entirely benign, no matter how much people claim that it is. Yeah, and uh, a huge amount of marijuana induced psychosis and other health benefits. Um, one of the organizations that started, I don't know if I shared with you, is, is called Isaac, the International Academy on Science and Impact of Cannabis. Mm -hmm. And in it, I put together a medical library of the various um, reference, peer-reviewed scientific um, uh, publications on health effects on the heart and brain and, and GI system and kind of going over. There's thousands and thousands of articles I don't have even the majority of them, just key ones that I put together for people to be able to advocate. Sounds like so, a vitally important resource. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll send it to you so you can check it out. Yeah. Look forward to it. Brian, you are the um, president elect of ASAM. Congratulations. Thank you. And uh, what are the priorities for ASAM? Well, so ASAM is the American Society of Addiction Medicine. We are the physician-led professional community for those that prevent, treat, and promote remission and recovery from the disease of addiction, and to provide resources for continuing innovation, advancement, and implementation of addiction science and care. So that's the, that's the tagline. Um, ASAM's vision is a future where addiction prevention, treatment, remission, and recovery are accessible to all and profoundly improve the health of all people. So we recently adopted a three-year strategic plan that starts this year in 2022. So our overarching goals are to grow and strengthen involvement in addiction medicine. One of the things that you and I talked about up front is it always struck me when more emergency physicians weren't involved. I think addiction medicine really wants to be the source of professional development, knowledge, information, and support for the whole variety of physicians that see addiction. Because we, we, uh, any, any physician that sees patients sees patients with addiction. We want to be the home uh, for support and knowledge around that. We want to expand access to addiction medicine, including reducing criminal legal system interference with the delivery of addiction care, championing addiction medicine access for all, supporting research for uh, uh, education, prevention, and treatment. Um, we want to set the standards for high quality and evidence-based care. One of the questions I get asked all the time is, you know, my family member is, has a substance use disorder on X, with say methamphetamine, right? What's the best treatment? I say, actually, the best treatment is to get an evaluation 
And that evaluation can help figure out what are the treatment planning components that would be important. Because it depends upon a lot more than just what substance somebody uses. So ASAM has something called the ASAM criteria. It's modeled on a six-dimensional assessment that then maps addiction out across four uh, domains of care. Um, and so uh, I think we, we no longer think of um, the treatment for addiction as being, you know, uh, meds versus counseling or, you know, these kinds of patients need uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and those kinds of patients need motivation enhancement therapy. The way we think of it is as a medical condition, right? Somebody comes in with heart disease, there are certain markers that mean you need to be in the hospital. And there's certain markers that say you can be discharged and managed on an outpatient basis. Same thing's true with addiction, right? There's certain factors that would mean you need to go to a higher level of care, and certain factors where you can go to a lower level of care. And the ASM criteria also then can be useful at uh, looking at the components of treatment that will be effective. We want to educate the addiction workforce and our patients. Um, I, we think addiction is not well understood in the community, so it's not just medical clinicians that ASAM's focus, but we also want to be a source of information, you know, evidence-based, reliable information for the public, and then maximize our operational effectiveness, as we all do with all organizations. We're on a balanced budget, make sure that we're continuing to grow and thrive as an organization. So those are, those are ASAM's focus for the coming three years. I like it. Um, well, I want to say thank you to ASAM because uh, I took the courses and it helped me pass my boards. <laughs> so I thank you, ASAM. And then I, I would also, I didn't quite hear, I was listening for it. You know, the, the dream when I was at ONDCP that we really advocated for um, was having uh, addiction medicine uh, services in hospitals. So yeah. if you have a patient coming with endocarditis because they're using intravenous drug use, they're going to get, you know, infectious disease consult, a cardiac consult, you know, hospital service, intensivist service, um, all sorts of consultations, but no one will may get to the source of what got to them in yeah. the first place. We, so we, we really, we have palliative care services for people who have need an addiction medicine team, like in every major hospital in the I, United States. I couldn't agree more. It's one of our sub bullet points, <laughs> but uh, if you were in a hospital, I can understand why you're, why you're listening for that. Uh, we put that under okay. our access goal and uh, yeah, every hospital should have an addiction medicine service. Um, every outpatient primary care practice <laughs> should have an addiction medicine consultation. If not yeah. like a local team of uh, you know, uh, either, uh, addiction-informed behavior health clinicians or SUD counselors. Um, uh, every street medicine service, especially service, I, you know, I think that addiction is widespread enough that we need to expect every system of care to identify addiction, uh, treat addiction within our scope, right? Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I'm not suggesting emergency rooms have like residential addiction treatment programs in, in the back, although it would be provocative if they did, um, but to route the patient to the appropriate level of care as feasible. Mm -hmm. To create those partnerships exactly. in the community that, yeah. And, and historically, you know, the addiction medicine treatment system has stood alone, uh, away from the rest of medicine, right? Yeah. Um, staffed with different types of clinicians, regulated differently, funded differently. These are the sorts of divisions that make it harder uh, for our system to be more integrated and be more effective for the patients we serve. All important. Um, Brian, anything else you want our audience to know about? Um, recovery is possible. I think that, that sometimes we see, gosh, methamphetamine is, you know, an endemic and gosh, we're in the middle of an overdose epidemic and we are right. I, I, you know, the, the public health threat to overdose is as high as it's ever been. We saw more overdoses in 2021 than at any other point in U.S. history. So like, Sorry. I am not going to detract from that. 
but we have tools. Recovery is possible. And what I, I can't tell you how many patients come into my office and I say, Dr. Early, I feel broken. I feel like I feel ashamed. And I think like, you know, you have a substance use disorder, help is possible, recovery is possible. So that would be one of the messages I, w- I would want to, to put out there is if you're, if you're suffering with an addiction, if you're a friend or family member, if you're working with patients that have addiction, um, that uh, it's, there's not always a silver bullet, but recovery is always possible. And the thing that uh, is, I, I just, I don't, I don't give up. I don't give up my patients. I don't give up on my community. I still keep chipping away at it. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. There is there is hope and there is a brand new world. Uh, addiction is a chronic relapsing disease of the brain okay. and it has, it's treatable and there's 20 million Americans living in recovery as proof that it's possible. That's right. That's right. So um, thank you for that. And I want to say thank you to Annie McFarland. Uh, Annie, you are a mer- miracle worker in our emergency department. Um, uh, we call you to help on the seemingly impossible. Uh, the emergency department is a front line of society's problem. And so we need you 24-7. You saw you know, cases of people losing their car keys and or home keys that can't get home. Um, they, uh, you know, they need to get their cat and they don't want to come in the hospital. And we're going to figure that out. And family doesn't want to take a patient home and the pharmacy won't fill the prescriptions and all the problems uh, you do magic to solve them as much as you could. And I really thank you for that. And thank you, um, Dr. Hurley. Um, uh, may you have the best of luck as president of uh, ASAM and a lot of good work ahead um, for the organization, for our country, for our patients. And we really appreciate your education, leadership, dedication to a population that really deserves second chances and a new generation of Americans that deserves less of a potential of a preventable disease. So I really wish you a lot of success in your presidency, in your career. And I really thank you for that. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to FAF, Families Against Fentanyl. Visit familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign the petition to declare illegal fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Make drug dealers think twice and three times before peddling killer drugs. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.